Doctor, lawyer, baker, librarian. If you want to make more money, you head for the bright lights of the big city, right? Normally, you look at the high-earning parts of the country. You look at the coasts, maybe Chicago, um, and you think that's where you expect to see a lot of educated and high-earning people. Here, what we see is that physicians earn substantially more if they move away from those areas. Welcome to the Pie. I'm your host, Tess Viglund. Economists are always talking about the pie, how it grows and shrinks, how it's sliced, who gets the biggest share. In this show, we're talking about the most pressing matters of the day seen through the lens of economics. The Pie is a production of the University of Chicago's Becker Friedman Institute. And in this episode, we're looking at what doctors make in America and why it doesn't always pay to move to a bigger city in the pursuit of a higher paycheck. We're also exploring some of the ripple effects of income inequality when the haves create more for their fellow haves than they do for the have-nots. Oh, and we've got a side of Taylor Swift thrown into the mix. Swifties and economics, you're welcome. My name is Josh Gottlieb. I am a professor at the University of Chicago in the Harris School of Public Policy. I'm also the co-director of the Health Economics Initiative at the university's Becker Friedman Institute. My favorite pie is apple crumble. So Josh, we're first going to talk uh, about what people who fix other people are paid, doctors, uh, and then we're gonna broaden that out to look at the income gap within that occupation and how that income gap then spills over into other areas of the profession and the economy. So let's start with your research on what doctors make in America. Give us a sense of that earning power. The average physician in 2017 earned $350,000, but there's a lot of variation behind that average. So the median, that is the number where half earn above and half earn below, is $265,000. And then as you get into the top, the, the right part of that distribution, you get much more substantial numbers in, in the millions. So the, among the physicians in the top 1% of physicians, the average earnings are $4 million. If you look among the top 10% of physicians, the average is 1.3 million. So there's a huge amount of variation behind that average. So let's talk about that variation and and that gap because you know I think listeners would be like wow 350 to 4 million that's a really large gap uh, between the lowest and highest earners. Um, so can we explain that by doctors who are early in their careers versus later in their careers? Is it about specializing into a certain category of medicine? What are the primary explanations for this? Those are two of the important explanations. First is the time pattern is very steep and very interesting. Physicians spend a long time in training. And one thing that we found is that that is related to the amount they ultimately learn. So specialties hmm. that require longer training do have higher earnings later on. Because you had to go to school for longer, right? <laughs> exactly. You had to go for school for longer. You had to do your residency, your fellowship. And those are often very difficult, uh, long hours, hard work, in addition to a lot of years. And so we see a lot of evidence that the market is compensating 
physicians for that. That's one part of the pattern. And, th and then after you've done with that, then you can, then depending on your specialty, you might might be very well compensated to, to trade off for those, those investments that you made earlier in your career. But as you also alluded to, it differs by specialty. So not all specialties have this, not all specialties have the long training, and not all specialties have these kinds of high incomes. The other thing that is very different for different physicians is the role of business income. So there are physicians who own their practice or own ancillary services, and those are an important part of the gap between these high-earning physicians and the average. Hmm, interesting. What specialties have the highest and lowest earnings? So when, when we're looking at that gap, particularly looking at these specializations, I'm going to assume that probably a brain surgeon is going to earn more, um, any sort of surgeon, and maybe an internal medicine is probably going to earn less. Can you give us a sense of who's at the top end and who's at the lower end? Your intuition is exactly right. And this is consistent with popular impressions of what specialties are more and, and less remunerative. So neurosurgery is the highest earning at the career peak. Primary care, family medicine, pediatrics, neurology are much lower earning. In general, surgery and, and procedural specialties tend to do well. And there is also a significant difference in physician pay depending on where they live, right? Can you walk us through that finding? The geographic patterns were super interesting to us because they are quite different than what you would expect and what we see in the general economy or other skilled occupations. So normally, you look at the high-earning parts of the country, you look at the coasts, maybe Chicago, um, and you think that's where you expect to see a lot of educated and high-earning people. Right. Here, what we see is that physicians earn substantially more if they move away from those areas. So we did some comparisons with lawyers. Lawyers tend to earn more in exactly the places that you would expect, in, in New York, on the coasts. The big cities. The big cities, the places where they can be more productive, can have more clients. But the same physician, if they move to the Great Plains, to the Dakotas, to Wyoming, they end up earning more versus if they're in Boston or D.C. or California. And that was a really unique uh, and surprising pattern to uncover. Yeah, that seems very counterintuitive. Again, based on kind of those other occupations that, that you mentioned, that, you know, of course, if you live in a big city, you're going to make more money, in part because it's more expensive to live there. So... What accounts for this difference when it comes to medicine? One important factor is that the government subsidies for insurance, for the care that effectively the product physicians are selling, increase the purchasing power of residents in these rural locations or, or, or less lower income states for medicine relative to other things they could be buying, right? If you are in a rural area or you're in, in the Dakotas, you're able to buy the same medical services through Medicare and other insurance programs as someone who lives in New York. Uh, and so the government is effectively subsidizing their purchasing power and that's flowing through into physicians' incomes. There are other factors that could be at play also. They may have less competition 
on be able to charge higher markups in uh, as a result. But this combination of services that are being subsidized and and that and then interacting with uh, potentially less competition makes us a very different market than other high-skilled labor markets. So this is uh, a lot of what you talked about in, in this paper where government intervention uh, has a really large, almost outsized impact on the figures that you end up looking at. So when you talk about subsidies, is that Medicare, I assume? Can you kind of explain where that comes from and why that is more prevalent in some of these lower income states? Yeah, we were focusing on Medicare payment policies because it has national scope. Uh, And Medicare thinks hard about these issues. Medicare has tried to figure out how to adjust payments across regions and uh, and it does that in a way that that we think leads to some of these patterns or, or helps push in the direction of some of the patterns that we've seen. So they they don't fully reduce payments in uh, rural areas to compensate for the lower input costs, lower lower costs of staff and real estate in in those markets. And so that helps to support the incomes of physicians in those markets. So when we look at the overall impact of government policies, how much do they drive both decisions around what medical specialty people decide to go into, um, and then how much they're paid? I'm glad you brought up the specialty angle again, because I think these subsidies interact with the entry restrictions in a really interesting way. Normally, if you have a big demand increase, and that's effectively what insurance is providing here. Insurance is saying there is going to be more demand for medical services because we have all of these public programs. That's the point, right? The public programs want to ensure that people are buying medical services even if they don't have as many resources as people, say, in, in New York or San Francisco have. They're going to be able to buy medical services. So you're increasing demand for medical services. So normally, if you increase demand in that way, you're going to get a supply response, right? In most markets, if you start creating a big government program, you're going to have more entry. But it's so hard to enter, in particular, lucrative specialties because of the limited number of training slots. So instead of seeing that demand show up through now there's more availability of care, we see it show up in higher incomes for the limited number of of specialists who are able to get those slots. All right. Now let's get to some interesting effects of all this data. Um, In a second study, you looked at that income inequality gap that we talked about earlier and what it means outside of the medical community. What prompted this research? So we talked a lot in the previous study about the role of government, but as we also discussed, there's a huge amount of variability in incomes left over that's not explained by that. And so the question is, what's going on to allow some people to command much higher incomes for providing fundamentally the same sort of care, the same sort of service as somebody else? And why have we seen inequality growing among physicians and the same time has been growing among other occupations where 
there are different changes in technology that, that might make sense of it. So the classic example here is that Taylor Swift can sell millions of records and give tours in huge stadiums to millions of people. The top person can reach a tremendous audience in a way that they couldn't or that would have been harder to do long ago. That can lead to inequality in occupations like entertainment. CEOs can see growing inequality because technology enables them to manage larger firms. So that works for some occupations, but we've seen growing inequality among lots of occupations, not just those where these technological stories would seem to have bite. So our story in the second paper is that it's not an accident that we're seeing growing inequality across occupations at the same time, but it's actually very connected. The argument is that the top doctors are going to be able to charge more when the consumers who they're serving make more money. So the inequality spills over because, say, Taylor Swift can now afford to pay much more for access to the best services in the world, whatever she wants to access. Beyonce can pay tens of thousands of dollars to her personal trainer. As these stars make more money and, and people less extreme, but, but you get the point, yeah. they're going to be willing to pay more for access to, to their preferred physician or their preferred dentist or their preferred realtor. Why does that spillover occur? Can, can you paint that waterfall for us? So we wrote down a model which helps us understand the conditions under which a service occupation like physicians is going to experience these spillovers. And it's not going to be universal. It's going to really be for, for occupations that meet certain conditions. So the occupation has to provide a service where there are differences in quality and where it's non-divisible, meaning you really want to see your doctor. Ah. Because that's what prevents the doctor from dividing up um, their their skills and, and serving the whole market. It's got to be this doctor is going to go spend time with their clients. The clients like that. And, and they can't, the doctor doesn't face as much competition on price because it's really got to be them. And that's fairly unique, right? I mean, I suppose you could maybe argue that, you know, you want the lawyer that you've always had. But with a doctor, that is really something, especially in this country, where people are like, I want my doctor. Exactly. You can't say, oh, 10 doctors for, you know, for, for two minutes each is really valuable. No, it's one doctor right. for 20 minutes, right? And so that means it's really about the individual and we show that that's the type of occupation where you'd get these spillovers. What about the spillover the other direction? If you have high-income doctors, does that then also spill out beyond them? Um, so in other words, does that spill over to other occupations? Yes, doctors are also consumers. And so when you put doctors in this model as consumers, they also need to go see the doctor 
or the dentist or use a real estate agent to buy a house. But if the doctor wants to go see Taylor Swift, you don't get the same phenomenon um, with, with Taylor Swift because they can buy an extra ticket just like anyone else or buy an extra, download an extra copy of her album just like anyone else. Taylor Swift can easily increase the number of, number of tickets she sells, the, the number of downloads that she provides. Um, and so you don't get the same kind of mechanism from doctors to, to lawyers as you do from lawyers to doctors. Okay. Is it fair to describe this kind of very simply as if you're a top brain surgeon, therefore a top earner in medicine, it's probably going to be higher income patients who come to you because A, they have the means to hear about you and B, they can afford you. And then kind of the opposite at the lower end of the scale? That's the idea, exactly. The, the high income patients and you, you raise a really good point, Tess. It's both that you have to have the information about who you want to see and the means to go see them. In our model, it doesn't really matter whether they are actually a better doctor or a better dentist. Uh, they just have to be more attractive to the high-income people. Um, and I think it's an open question how those two met senses of, of quality are related but yes top earners are gonna are gonna have a set of people who they want to go see and those people are going to be able to command a premium and what about other occupations uh you list about i don't know 25 of them in the research what did you find in terms of this kind of spillover outside of medicine i know we've already talked about taylor swift and lawyers but <laughs> what about <laughs> yeah. beyond that we find evidence of this phenomenon for physicians, for dentists, and for real estate agents. And that makes sense because these are occupations that meet the assumptions of this model, where you can't just scale up your production arbitrarily. You need that person, that one realtor, that one dentist to really be invested in, in their client, um, spending a lot of time on that client. And you can't easily divide up the job among, among multiple different dentists. Um, so that's where we see these spillovers. When we look at lawyers, at engineers, at um, people in finance, we don't see these spillovers. These are not occupations that, that have the same, the same characteristics. So Josh, what does this tell us overall about patterns of income inequality and more importantly, how to fix that inequality? So taking this together, we've learned that there are both market forces and a big role for government policies in driving the income distribution that we see in the world. And you need to think about the actual causes, the specific forces at play, rather than assuming that, say, policy is always intervening to reduce inequality. Policy may be increasing inequality. It also says that there's a rich set of economic phenomena at play. There's more going on than simply changes in tax rates. Uh, and if you want to understand what's going on 
in an income distribution for a particular industry, you need to understand the economics of that industry. Josh Gottlieb, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Tess. The Pie is a production of the Becker Friedman Institute for Economics at the University of Chicago. If you'd like to keep in touch with the latest economic research from the University of Chicago, you can visit bfi.uchicago.edu slash subscribe. And you can sign up for our newsletter there as well. And of course, you can subscribe to The Pie on any of your favorite podcast platforms. Our theme music was composed by Story Mechanics, production assistance from the BFI communications team. I'm Tess Vigland, your host and executive producer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.